Beloved, that which we put our focus upon becomes the centerpiece of our life. We, we know this is true in every facet of our life, whether it's in sports. If a football player is running and he's out in the clear open, he will set his uh, face and his eyes squarely on the goal line. He is running toward a place. The baseball players, he's stealing a base. As he runs to the next base, he will put his eyes directly where he is heading, what his destination is. If you're in a car and you're driving, one of the things my dad taught us, my, my brother and sister and I, uh, as we drove, is to look as far down the road as you can and to let, let your peripheral vision come into play, but you're able to stay straighter and truer as you're driving the farther down the road you're able to look. If you've ever mowed a lawn, you know that pushing a lawnmower, if you can fix a point down the road or, or farther ahead of you rather than looking straight down in front of the mower, you're able to make much straighter, cleaner passes with a lawnmower. It's true that what we fix our eyes upon, that which we set our eyes and vision upon becomes so key and critical if we are to, to, to be successful in our endeavors if we're to do things as true as we possibly can. And the same is true in our spiritual life and, and what it means to set our hope and to set our eyes on God. That is terminology used in the Scripture in multiple places of fixing our eyes or setting our hope in God. In fact, in Psalm 16:8, the Bible says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Parents in the Psalms are also told to guide their children to set their hope in God. So as they grow up in their life, they will have a constant center around which they might build their life. The constant reality of God's being present in their life. That no matter what might change in their education or their relationships or their financial status or a particular job they might find themselves in or an opportunity to move to a new place, it is God who be remains the constant centerpiece of their life that they might set their hope in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, we're told to, to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Today, brothers and sisters, I want to talk to you about um, the fact that we hear God in the passage that we will look at, hear God telling us to set our hope in Him and not in our wealth. Today's going to be the last of, of a three-part series about stewardship and thinking about the importance of wealth and the conversation that the Bible has about wealth, the teaching that it has about wealth. Uh, and, and just our relationship to money and what it should be and can be and how joyful it can be if it is done and approached rightly with our discipleship in tow. Ultimately, the Bible tells us that your future rests in God. Your future rests in God, not the amount of wealth that you accumulate. And that's part of what we're going to read today. If you have your Bibles, would you... Take a moment now and open them to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the last chapter of 1 Timothy. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to Timothy to help instruct Timothy on what it is to pastor uh, this congregation that, that he had been given. And this is some final instructions. And, and it is really insightful about the human heart 
and how we relate to money and, and the pressures that, that money, the pursuit of wealth or the lack of wealth, the pressures that might place in us and how walking with Jesus and fixing our eyes on Jesus and setting our hope in God helps totally shape our understanding of the, the good blessing that wealth can be. And on the opposite, uh, the other side of the coin, the, the, the great challenge it can be if our perspective on wealth gets distorted and turned around and becomes unbalanced in our life. Here's what the Bible says, Paul speaking to Timothy and God speaking to you. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I underlined and bolded a section of that passage. That was my, my note um, for our emphasis today. Setting your hope in God. I, I just have two primary uh, areas of focus that I, I think that the Scripture, this passage is speaking to us and I feel are really important for us to hear today. Two items. Number one, as we set our hope in God, as you would set your hope in God, I, I want you to hear why that's important. And I want you to hear today the practical reality of what that means because in, in one sense, setting our hope in God, it, it's a humongous philosophical concept. And, and it's a huge overarching reality. But today I want you to see how it boils down, how it trickles down into some very realistic and concrete things, uh, realities for your life that give shape to your life and help you fix your eyes forward so that you can live your life true and straight with God. Number one, when you set your hope in God, it is God who shapes your inner character. When you have setting your hope in God, God in that process, as you continually set God before you, God comes and He shapes your inner character. He shapes the person that you are becoming, and that's just what He wants to do. And this passage points out two ways that your character is shaped as you put your hope in God. Number one is that you are shaped by God with contentment. You're shaped with contentment. And contentment, even if you have just a very little. Did you, did you hear the passage? In, in verse 6, it says that godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing in the, into the world. 
When you were born, did you bring anything into the world? Well, of course you didn't. And when you exit this life, will you take anything with you? No way. There are cultures all over the world and through history that when, when burials happen, that people would take and they, they would be buried with so much of their material possessions, whether it was gold or jewels or uh, sometimes people are buried with boats. Uh, they can be buried with all sorts of things in the assumption that somehow it would translate to the afterlife and it would, it would prepare for their coming in the afterlife. You'd accumulate what you can because the thought was in many cultures that when you died, you would somehow take it with you. And God says that's not the way that life and death works. You brought nothing into the world. And guess what? You will take nothing out of the world. So part of the question that God wants us to understand is this. If I take nothing out of the world, what is it that I'm leaving behind in the world? How is my life going to leave a mark for the people that God has placed in my life. And that, that's part of what God has for us to think about. You see, even when you have very little, God wants to shape contentment in your heart and your life. Because often what happens is that we wrongly assume that more wealth will bring more happiness, right? That's what our culture tells us and our world tells us. More wealth equals more happiness. And we wrongly assume that that's true. But here's what I have discovered. The reality is for most of us that if you're unhappy and discontented before you acquire wealth or before you enter into that particular relationship that you've so longed for or you finally get that job that you've sought out after, if you're unhappy and discontent before entering into those things and acquiring them, chances are likelihood is great that that still will not fulfill you that you will remain unhappy and discontented because, likely, instead of putting your hope in God, you have put your hope in the assumption that more of those things or that one missing item of your life will somehow equate to happiness and contentment. Not so, the Scripture says. Not so, the Scripture says. In 1911, the painting of the Mona Lisa disappeared for two years. It had been stolen. And during those two years when it was absent, more people looked, came by to look at the spot where the Mona Lisa had been to see it. More came during those two years of its absence than had come in the two years prior to it being absent. Isn't that true of us in our lives and what seems to call to our hearts at times that we often live more concerned with what is not there in our life, more concerned with what we don't have, and we, we can create and have a fixation upon that which is not there more than what we actually do have. It's, it's an expression many times of discontentment in our life. So as God comes and, and He wants you to fix your, your, your hope in Him, to set your hope in Him, part of the inner character that He shapes in your life in relation to money and wealth and understanding uh, its rightful place it's joy and good place in your life. He will shape in you contentment. Whether you have a very little, you can learn to be content in the Lord Jesus. Whether you have a lot, you can learn to be content in the Lord Jesus and learn to look at wealth and, and if God has blessed you with that, to enjoy it and to appreciate the gift 
of God. But the second item, aspect, is this character quality that's shaped in you, according to our passage, is humility. It doesn't use that word directly, but indirectly, that's the response of what Paul is talking to about. It's being humble when you have a lot. Being humble when you have a lot. He says to tell those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. To not be arrogant, but to put their hope in God. To not be arrogant about the wealth they've accumulated because of the uncertainty of it, but to put their hope in God because God is certain. Because God is the only stable reality in the world in which we live. You see, there's the folly of arrogance for people who would accumulate wealth and assume somehow that that their future is secured because of their financial statement. And God says that that is folly. Or there's an arrogance that that can develop in the heart when uh, those who maybe have accumulated wealth can have their hearts distorted, and and there can be a subtle sometimes assumption that they are better than others around them because they have accumulated more. Can you imagine humility? If the world was filled with a greater level of humility, can you, especially humility around financial things, can you imagine how much crime and cruelty would be removed from the world if greed And the love of money was removed from the human heart. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how how little white-collar crime there would be? How much less violent crime there might be? How much less neglect of individuals there might be in our world? Here's a question to examine yourself this week, if you would like to. Consider this. If if what you have right now, if, if your house or your job or your retirement... If it was suddenly removed from you, if it was suddenly just taken away, if it was here today and tomorrow you wake up and it's gone, would your life just crumble because your hope rested in those things? Or would your hope in God stabilize you? Certainly it might be shocking. Certainly, it might take you a minute to get your bearings and to to process all that's happened. But at the end of the day, would you crumble because your hope was set in those things? Or would the fact that your hope is settled and fixed on God, would that stabilize you in the midst of those realities? And I would invite you to take that question into your prayer life this week and to ask God about it. As you set your hope in God, We've said through this scripture passage that God wants to come and shape your inner character. And he does it in two ways. He shapes contentment in you, whether you have a lot or a little. And he also shapes humility in you so that arrogance does not become a quality of your character. And it allows you to be able to share. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. The second item that I see in this passage about setting our hope in God is that it does open you for generosity. It opens you up to generosity. When you set your hope in God, and as you get to know God better, you realize how generous God is, how generous God is to people in the world generally, and how generous God has been and is to you. And as you begin to to see His example of generosity, 
it, it begins to well up and open you up to be even more generous in your life. To be more generous in verse 18, the scripture says to command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You see, setting your hope in God opens your life for generosity toward other people. Why is generosity important? Well, there's at least three aspects that I think uh, rise to the top as to why generosity is important. Number one is that arrogance is smashed. We looked at that just a minute ago. The, the temptation toward arrogance to, to think of myself as more important or better than other people. Arrogance is smashed in my regularity, my regular practice of being generous with others. My arrogance is smashed. Uh, by remembering that I have been blessed by God, and so now I can be a blessing to other people. And it's God who is working through me, not just me giving out of my excess. You see, here's what I think fundamentally is the point of this passage, is that genuine wealth is measured by what we give and not by what we have. Your wealth, more than your retirement account, more than what you might hope to leave as a bequest or an inheritance to your children and grandchildren, your true wealth, God says, is measured not in those things, but it's measured in, in what you're able to give, not in, in what you've accumulated in your life. So number one is uh, how God opens us to generosity and why it's important is because arrogance is smashed. We're able to be uh, more generous because we're not just looking out for my own self. Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Luke about a man. It's actually subtitled uh, as the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool. And a man looks around at all that he, he had accomplished and earned in his life and uh, all of the excess that he has. And his barns are full. He was a farmer. And, and he says, what am I going to do? I don't have enough room to store all of my stuff. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I don't have enough room to store everything I've accumulated, so what should I do? And, and part of your, your heart as you read it is you want to say, give it away, share it. You've got more than you need, share it. But that's not what he does. He decides he needs to build more barns, and he's going to continue to fill those. And he is called a fool because that very night, his life was to be demanded of him. He was going to die. And instead of being generous toward others, he had just looked out for himself. You see, your heart is opened as you fix your hope in God. Your heart is open toward generosity. So arrogance is smashed in your life. And secondly, is that needs are met. Obviously, the needs of other people get met. God meets needs through his people sharing with one another. That's part of what it is. Can God miraculously share Yes, he can. Could God somehow go into your bank account and add money there? Well, of course he could. But what is most likely to happen when you have a need in your life? Uh, God will provide for that need most often through the generosity of other people. And as you learn to be generous with your life, you get to see how God works through you to bless other people. Charitable giving in the U.S. Amer Americans... 
uh, are, are, are more generous in their giving to charities than any other industrialized nation. Year after year after year, uh, studies reveal this. Americans generally, most would say, depending on what statistics you want to look at, but Americans would give on average somewhere between 3 and 5% of their income toward charitable causes. That's just generally speaking. Uh, one one uh, uh, person evaluating it describes a U-curve. He examined five different uh, uh, charitable um, uh, financial uh, evaluative tools and uh, looked at how different uh, economic income levels of different people and how they gave of their money. And he described this U-shaped uh, reality is that people who, who have less money tend to give more of that money and people who have a whole lot of money tend to give a lot of their money away as well, percentage-wise, of their income. It's the people in between that tend to give less. And so people who earn less tend to give more. People who earn somewhere in the, the middle income ranges tend to give less, percentage-wise. And people who are on the wealthier edge tend to give more again. It creates this U-curve of generosity based on the percentage of giving. I hope that makes sense to you. There was a study done a few years ago, about a dozen years ago, that reported uh, the giving patterns of evangelical Christians. And, and it was reported in, in this uh, evaluation that evangelical Christians, uh, those who would probably refer to themselves as some of the more serious-minded followers of Jesus, on average only gave about 4% of their income to the church. And Christians generally, including non-evangelical types, gave only about 2.4% of their income. So when we're talking about generosity, and we're talking somewhere, Christian or not, somewhere between 3 and 5% on average of giving to charity or to the church, does that seem generous to you? I don't know if it does to me. I'm just not sure. In fact, I do have an opinion, but I'll let you form your own opinion. Many Bible scholars would encourage us to consider God's instruction of the tithe, which is 10%. And they would tell us, they would encourage us, many scholars would say that the 10% idea in the Scripture, the 10% that Herb even talked about as our current stewardship chair, that 10% is not a maximum point to reach, but actually it's not a ceiling but it's more of a floor. It's an entry point. It's the minimum that one might ought to think about in considering giving back to God, giving to God as their, their giving reality. I'm not here to tell you how much to give. That's not my place. I am here to encourage you to sit and, and to enter into prayer and consideration with God about what He would have you give. And my encouragement to you is to consider giving whatever you gave this past year. Maybe think this year, could you give 1% more to the church? Because God, God's plan has not changed. God's plan has been and is to work through the church. Through the church. And I, for one, believe, and it's not just because I'm a pastor, but I believe that for Christians... The most significant portion of my charitable giving ought to be done through the church because that is God's primary vehicle for His work in the world. There are a lot of great charities in the world, absolutely. 
and you are free and encouraged to give to those. There's a lot of great ministries in the world, absolutely. But I believe that a Christian's primary calling in their giving is to give first through the church and to give that way. When you give to to this church, when you give to TBC, I want you to know you're not just giving to the church, you're also giving through the church. You're giving to help support ministries in the Bay Area. You're helping us uh, as we minister to some homeless people in a regular way. You're giving to help us as we we help minister to homeless mothers and their children. Your, your giving helps us minister to migrant farm workers and, and so forth down the way. You're also, when you give to the church, when you give to this church, part of your giving goes out to a collection of tens of thousands of other Southern Baptist churches, and together that money is pooled into something called the cooperative program, where churches have chosen to share and to pool some of their monies together so that we might multiply our effectiveness around the country, around the state of California or whatever state your church might be located in, and all around the world. It, it goes to support such things as disaster relief. Did you know the number one provider of meals to the Red Cross in the midst of disasters across North America is the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief Agency? Uh, your giving helps uh, start and plant new churches in places sometimes where churches have not thrived in a long, long time. Your giving helps uh, support church planting in other places around North America and the world. It supports our missionaries out in various places. It supports seminary education. And this, this day, I want to invite you to take just a minute now as we watch this little video, this brief video about the cooperative program and how together we are stronger as we take the money that you share and we share it with others for the glory of God and for his kingdom. Let's watch. The word together means more today. In these moments of isolation and fear and turmoil, Together means more. At Southern Baptist, we are churches dispersed across the country, varying sizes and locations and cultures, and we share our generosity. In good times and bad, through wars and depressions, through terrorism and disasters, we serve side by side. We give for a common goal, we sacrifice together for the only mission that truly matters, the Great Commission. We are drawn not by the events of the day, but by the events of our shared King. His gospel story changed our own story and promises to change the story of the world. And so we pray, we give, we go. And although today we are physically Together we stand. We didn't ask for this moment. We didn't seek it. But in this moment, we choose to come together. Because the Great Commission cannot be thwarted. Disease and pestilence will not stop him. Economics and markets have no control over him. Fear and anxiety doesn't affect him. Distance cannot hold him. Death did not defeat him. God's plan cannot be stopped. It will not. And his plan 
is for us to join him. These times are challenging. They feel isolated. They put the true value of the cooperative program on full display. We are better together. And together we bring the good news for the whole world. We've been talking about setting our hope in God and how that opens us toward generosity. And part of being open toward generosity is that it, it, it sets our perspective. When our eyes are focused and fixed on God as the centerpiece of our life, it helps us then finally to take hold of the true life. Life that is truly life, the scripture says in verse 19. That we're, we're beginning to see and understand and appreciate how I maneuver, how I work, how my presence in the kingdom of God functions and why I and why you are an important part of what God has in mind in his kingdom that's expressed um, in, in large measure through the church. So as we as a church, we just a few weeks ago, we have uh, adopted a new vision for the church and our new mission statement is this, calling Marin and beyond to live in the fullness of life through Jesus. And part of what we, I, want, I want you to consider this day is uh, if you have already turned in your commitment card, thank you. Thanks for doing that. We know that if you haven't, it, it, in reality of things, we're so far out of our normal process for things. It's okay if you haven't. Uh, if you're intending to do that, thank you. Uh, I just want to encourage you, to know that this is your opportunity to tangibly share in helping the church take on this new stated mission. That we want to be more actively engaged in calling Marin and beyond into the full life that Jesus has for everyone who would bow their knee and to submit themselves and to open their life to the wonder and glory of Jesus in them. We want to introduce people to this great gospel message that Jesus loves them and has died for them and wants to live with them and to give them the fullest life that they would ever, ever have and could ever uh, know in their life. We, we want to ask you this year to renew your partnership and to, to communicate that renewal of your partnership by submitting a, a a commitment card and helping us know what that means uh, for us. I, again, just want to reiterate, I want to encourage you. We know that economic realities are tough this year, and some of you, as Herb mentioned, may not be able to give as much as you have in, in past years. And, and you know what? If that is settled in your heart and, and you're good with God with that, amen to that. But there might be others of you who are able and, and need to be challenged to consider giving 1% more or even more than that, uh, to take an extra step of faith, to trust God, to demonstrate that you are not going to be shrouded with fear of uncertainty or fear of scarcity, but you're going to trust God. You're not going to trust in wealth and, and that that's going to secure your future, but you're going to trust God. I'm going to be honest with you today that our pledges for next year are, are at some of the lowest that they have been in some long time. The numbers of pledges, the dollars that have been pledged, 
And in one sense, that's very understandable because um, uh, there are a lot of churches uh, wondering how financial realities are going to be uh, present for them in the coming year. So that's another reason why I think it's so important for me to share with you where we are today uh, and that we are trusting God. We're not hiding in fear. We're not wringing our hands. But the reality is we have fewer pledge cards than we've ever had on our first commitment Sunday and fewer dollars than have ever been committed. And if that's the way God wants to provide for us, then we'll adjust as we need to. But it's important that I let you know that you're invited to talk with God about it, to invite God to help place a number financially in your heart. Maybe you would start if you've never given. Maybe this year you start with 1%. Maybe, maybe you're curious like Herb was. Can I really step out in faith? And could I reach out and give up to 10% of my income? Uh, that's something that you need to talk with God about. But I want to challenge you this morning to take a serious approach to this matter. And I want to challenge you this morning uh, to, and invite you, really, to come and to be partners with us as we take on and step into this new mission, that it really would become a reality for us and that it's really well-funded for us to step into, to take on some new technologies, to begin to maneuver in some different ways. And uh, it's going to be a great, great season ahead as God would lead us and provide for us. I am so happy uh, that you would even consider uh, sharing financially with us, partnering with us again, and renewing your commitment. And thank you for that. Let's pray together. God, we do rejoice in your generosity to us. Thank you that you are the one who teaches us how to be generous. And I pray that each person now who is hearing my voice this morning, that you, Holy Spirit, would lay on their hearts, that you would speak to them about how they should give. And if if they're only able to give uh, less than what they've, they've given in recent years, God, I pray that you would give them a release from any sense of guilt or any sense of uh, uh, anything that's not from you, Lord. Release them from that. For those who maybe you would prompt to give even more this year, may your Holy Spirit uh, bring conviction to them and, and speak clearly to their hearts. And God, help us to collectively demonstrate our trust and faith in you. Help us to show it, not talk about that we've set our hope in you, but to actually demonstrate that in the way that we might give and, and commit ourselves financially into the ministry of this church. So God, it's not for me to tell people what to do. I just want to point them to you. And so may we this week, if we have not yet done this, may we come and spend time with you about this. Because we need our hearts and our characters shaped with contentment and humility. And we need you, God, to open up generosity in our hearts. So that through our generosity, arrogance is smashed. Through our generosity, uh, we get to see how you meet the needs uh, of people around us. And sometimes our needs are met as you uh, raise up generosity in others. And so, God, we pray that you would guide us now. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, the great giver of his own whole life to us. What a generous gift that is. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.